Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Good morning. I'm Jeremy McClain of the Hedgeye retail team. Thank you for joining us today. Excited to talk about retail here on Hedgeye's The Outlook. And, uh, you know, we have a new retail sector pro product out. It's got some good offerings. You can see, uh, you know, see what we're doing in terms of idea changes, what, what things we're looking at bullish and bearish side. And uh, it's a new product that's only going to get better. Um, so, you know, we uh, excited about that. And with it, that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian to, to hit on some of the key things we're talking about in retail. Great. Thanks, Jam. I appreciate it. I wish you could be here with me in the studio. But uh, we're doing the Group A, Group B thing in the COVID world where we both can't be in, in the same office on the same day. So we got to make do with what we can. But um, I got a bunch of slides up here. I just want to walk you through our process overall, how we think about stocks. A couple of the main themes which are coming up right now that we're dealing with. Um, and most of all, I want to hit on our top picks because ultimately this is about stock calls. It's about making money. I think there's a lot of good trade ideas, a lot of good trend ideas, and a lot of good tail ideas. Um, trade, trend, tail being our three durations here. Um, trade being three weeks or less. Uh, trend being two to three quarters. You've heard Keith talk about this. And then tail being three years or less. Um, and we've got ideas that fit both long and short side across all those benchmarks. So um, you can look at our idea list here, which is on uh, slide four. You probably don't have to know what slide it is because we're uh, flipping them for you. Um, so uh, I've got that again at the end of the presentation as well. So you don't have to rush to take notes as to where certain names are on there. Top name by a long shot is Capri, which is a name I think is a three-bagger over a three-year time period. I think it doubles over two years. Um, since we put it on on 20, it's also it's up you know, 45%, and that's only about three to four weeks ago. So it's a name that's got a lot of momentum behind it, very, very misunderstood, and I think it's a great call. Um, on the flip side of that, we have Kohl's, which is our top short idea. Um, and Kohl's is a name where if you heard this company on that conference call yesterday, I don't know what management was smoking, but I wish I can get some because they were just out to lunch. They're talking about getting to profitability levels that they were at you know, two to three years ago. Even there have been such major structural changes to the business model um, at a time where they're going completely the wrong way with merchandising and assortment. Um, and they're not going to comp to the extent that people think that they will next year. Their inventory is way down. They're not going to have product for holiday. This thing is a disaster, and it was up 10% yesterday. Um, so I think that's a good name you could short. Um, hopefully you can uh, ask questions about all these other tickers. Also, if there's a ticker that's not on here that you've got a question about. Um, I've been doing retail for 26 years. I've got Jeremy McLean, who you heard from earlier. Jeremy is my top lieutenant. He's very senior. We divide and conquer the retail space. Certain names he specializes in, certain names I specialize in. Um, and ultimately, and we challenge the crap out of each other and ultimately, you know, attempt to come up to the best, with the best calls on our respective names. We've vetted hundreds of names out there. So if there's a name that's not on this idea list, please ping me with it. If I don't know anything about it, I'll tell you. I don't know anything about it. 
but at a minimum, I'll probably have uh, a decent amount of information on it and a view to at least be dangerous, if not reckless. Um, <laughs> hopefully not reckless. Um, let me walk you through uh, on this next slide here. This is, you've heard Keith talk about his quad model. I've got something that's a little similar. Um, it is a quad model. I call it Sigma. S-I-G-M-A, Sales, Inventory, Gross Margin Analysis. Basically, and I'll slow down here just a minute. I don't want to bore you academically because this is kind of an academic type thing, but on your vertical axis there, you have your sales to inventory spread. So if you have sales that are growing at 10%, inventories that are growing at 5%, that's very bullish. That means you're going to show up at a positive 5 um, on that axis. On the horizontal axis, you have your year-over-year -year change in your operating margin. So if you're to the far right, that means margins are up. If you're at the far left, it means margins are down. Generally speaking, you want to be in that upper right-hand quadrant. If you can pinpoint a move, and, and that, that line there, um, I should be more explicit, that's about five or six quarters there. Um, the past five or six quarters lined up over time showing where we are and the blue dot is where we are right now in the middle of earnings season that's going on right now. You have retail earnings season that takes place about a month after calendar earnings season for all the other companies in the S&P. Um, so we're dealing with this now. We had Target this morning, Walmart yesterday, Home Depot, Lowe's. It just keeps going on and on. But the point is, right now, we're at a point where margins are down, inventories are high, and sales are low. That's horrible. It's just absolutely horrible. Now, the big call here is that if you could move out of that quadrant into either quadrant one in the upper left-hand corner or quadrant two in the upper right-hand corner, you can make a lot of money. When stocks move from quadrant four up to quad one or quad two, Stocks don't go up by 10 or 20%. They go up by 80, 90, 100%. I mean, that's when stocks double. And that's what Jeremy and I really look for. Um, a lot of analysts out there in the old wall, they basically are looking at, hey, I'm going to upgrade this stock. It's got 12% upside. I think it's a strong, strong double secret buy. I don't care about 12% upside in a stock. I mean, I do. I'll take it on a trade. I work with Keith a lot on these levels. Um, and he's very good at identifying inflection points on a uh, trade duration, also a trend duration. Um, but what I really want is something that's so misunderstood whereby you're going to see um, earnings that are going to double versus where the street is, that you're going to see earnings get cut in half versus where the streets are, and these stocks just move in a, in a huge way. Uh, it's several standard deviations above or or below, where the consensus might be at any given point in time. Um, so this is a real key tool of ours. Uh, I don't always show it. Um, I don't always put it in all my reports, but it's one of the first things I look at anytime a company reports earnings, where is it on this Sigma analysis? And this is something I've been using ever since day one I started at Hedgeye, which is 13 years ago, I think. Um, I think I'm employee number three. Um, okay, next slide here, um, and I'm just going to flip around here a little bit. There's no continuity here with slide one to slide two to slide three. This is something that we're dealing with right now. This is the bankruptcy cycle. 
So basically what you're looking at here is, Jeremy, we've had how many bankruptcies? 35? We're up to 40 now. <clears throat> 40 bankruptcies year to date. So last year we set a record, an all-time record, as you saw the acceleration of e-com, putting mom-and-pop retailers out of business, and now COVID accelerated that. We've had, uh, you know, 40 uh, uh, bankruptcies for the year to date, as Jeremy pointed out. Um, over half of those have been in the apparel space. So apparel is having a very, very major problem right now. Um, there are other retailers, like we just saw, Guitar Center File, uh, we saw a pet value file. I mean, there are these little like niche retailers that just can't hack it anymore. But overall, apparel is where the really big problem is. We'll still probably have a couple more bankruptcies over the course of the year. An interesting trend here is that we started to see the mall REITs go bankrupt. So you had CBL and uh, Preet, um, which are two mall REITs that own roughly 130, 140 malls, which is roughly, what would that be, about 11, 12% of the total malls in the country actually went bankrupt. I think that means we're starting to get to the back end of the bankruptcy cycle, which would be very bullish. Um, and if companies can make it through holiday and actually get their cash in and their receivables are, are, are paid, um, that uh, we could see a slowdown in the early half of next year, in the early first quarter of next year. But I mean, that's going to be a very, very critical point as far as retail and bankruptcies. But uh, I'll, I'm on record as saying that, you know, we're getting to the end of the bankruptcy cycle, um, especially as comps get a hell of a lot easier next year. Um, and we see operating leverage off of higher sales numbers with lower SG&A and companies push through higher margins than they did last year. Certain companies will. Certain ones are going to fall short in a miserable way, which is why I love uh, just their names where they're, they're huge longs, other ones huge shorts based on that theme, which side they're going to end up on. Next one here, next slide I think is interesting. This is like a super duper long term back to 1900 slide showing you what retail square footage has looked like. So we have about 13 billion square feet of retail square footage space right now. But as e-com actually becomes a much greater part of the overall spending equation um, out there in the world of retail, um, going up to, we've got it going from a high teens number to about 25% over the course of five years, um, which I don't think is optimistic at all. Um, I think it's very realistic. Um, Ecom ultimately is infinite square footage. It's just online. It's all virtual, um, and you can get as much as much product out there as you might want. What that does is it marginalizes the existing brick and mortar retail square footage. So that red line there that slopes up, that basically tells me that as ecom gets to better uh, productivity rates and profitability rates. Um, and ultimately a greater percent of the total sales out there in all of retail, you're going to see this implied square footage double after us being at a point where it's been relatively flat over the course of, you know, call it a three to four or five year time period. So you've had mass bankruptcies, back to that slide uh, of, 
a few slides ago, you had these mass bankruptcies over the past few years. It stepped up big time. Um, and now you're going to see a big explosion in e-com, which is going to really marginalize some of the uh, weaker players out there. Um, and those are players that have to go away in order to keep the supply-demand balance um, at a point of equilibrium in order for companies to not see a big productivity hit and a big profit hit. One, uh, <clears throat> one call out there, Brian, is that, you know, this was not a, not a COVID theme. It's one we've been talking about for a few years. And we really saw the sort of implied square footage increasing in the data uh, around 2015, 2016. We think it's not a, not a coincidence that that's when you start to see retail bankruptcies uh, increasing as we're actually having a consumer, you know, improving on the margin, consumer ramp, and you saw retail bankruptcies increasing. That's that's this implied square footage dynamic at play, which is only accelerating now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeremy. Um, let's talk about some more near-term factors here. Next slide here. You're going to look at the trend in retail wages. They are through the roof. Um, actually, if you flip to the next slide. You see retail wages versus total private industry wages over time, and you can see that there's been a steady, you know, um, a steady discount across the board ever since 3Q05, um, with retail wages being well below where private industry wages are. Over the past two quarters, that is completely reversed. Now retail wages are at a premium. And what's interesting, you heard this from Home Depot, you heard it from Lowe's, TJX uh, earlier today said the same thing. Target is up to a $15 wage. Walmart, you know, 165,000 associates are getting pay raises. Um, you, you can't avoid, and then you have like the Coles of the world who is saying no, we aren't paying employees any more money because our employees just love working here. They just love working, so they'll do it for a lot less money, which I don't get because it's ridiculous. Um, so the point is, we're um, Costco is one uh, I would highlight. They've been paying um, hero pay, you know, pandemic pay. You're out there on the front lines. You're grinding away. You're coming in contact with people every day, and you have to be compensated more just to be near these people and risk actually being infected. And they paid $14 million incremental per week. And on the last conference call, and I'm long Costco, I think it's a great idea, but even they're talking about, yeah, we can start to peel that back now as we start to get into a post-COVID world. Sorry, folks, you can't do that. You can't pay employees more and all of a sudden come back and say, okay, COVID is starting to wane or now we have a vaccine, so I'm paying you less. Um, it just doesn't work. So all I'm saying is um, one of the largest expenses for a retailer is wages, and that is going up at an accelerating rate, which is very bearish. Um, another, Jeremy, uh, please hit on this one because you're our in-house credit expert. But one of the other big issues here is that you've got a number of these retailers that have what we call a, a, a powder keg of credit income. So these are companies where they have uh, private label portfolios. You go into a Kohl's, you go into a Target, you go into a Best Buy, a Dick's Sporting Goods, whatever it might be, um, and you go in there and you actually, you actually use your store card. Macy's is a big one. Um, in order to get a discount. And the management teams of these companies, 
um, don't really disclose very readily how big of a percentage of operating profit that it actually is. Um, I know, Jeremy, I asked you to hit, hit on it, and now I'm going through it, but I'll pass it over in a minute. But you got like Coles, who's got this partnership with Capital One, has 70% of its EBIT, 70% um, that comes from credit. So they're talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to sell a little more athletic product. We're going to do a little bit more in beauty, and we're going to sell more in home. What about credit? It, it, it is a massive risk to the portfolio here, especially as we see the increase in unemployment, even though it's been getting better on the margin. Um, the fact is you can see a big divergence next year. Jeremy, want to add just another one or two cents on that one? Yeah, sure. I'll just... Uh just for clarification, this is percentage of EBIT on uh, on 2019 numbers, right? Pre pre COVID, it's obviously much more significant now since uh, retail's been collapsing in terms of profitability. But uh, you know, there's the the big thing I think people should understand, and and I saw there was a question in the QA here about uh, Cole's guidance on credit. You know, they're talking about uh, credit recovering with sales, um, but you know the the way the portfolio works, it really has nothing to do with, uh, it doesn't correlate at least with sales. It has something to do with it because people need to build their balances. But you're, there's a receivables balance, right? That gets financing charges. There's late fees if they're not paying that. That revenue is shared with uh, between the card issuers, you know, Capital One, Synchrony, et cetera, and, uh, and the retailer. And then they also share in the costs, which are funding costs, which are pretty minimal, um, but then share in the uh, bad debt risk. So uh, what you know, we've been seeing retailers have their their credit income down in the recent quarters, but it's because of lower balances and less late fees. As uh, you know, consumers have actually been paying uh, you know at higher pay rates. Um, but we think there's you know an, an impending risk on the consumer credit cycle because every cycle we we've seen, you know, you have a, a rise in charge offs, and you know that becomes de facto losses on the portfolio that will get shared with the retailers. So. Um, when Kohl's is guiding, you know, it's just going to recover with sales. I would flag, you know, you saw Target today put out 21% uh, comps and their credit income was down 7.3% or something like that. So, you know, they, they're, they're not correlated. This, if your receivables balance is going down or your bad debt's going higher, it doesn't really matter what your sales are doing. So I um, want to make sure people sort of understand the, the, the dynamics of, of the portfolio and, and why we think it's a, you know, a huge risk is, um, you know, if we see that sort of credit cycle rollover, there's big, big losses potential in the portfolios, which just accrues directly to the retailers. And now this cycle, the exposure is, you know, anywhere from three to five to 10 X what it was back in 2008, 2009, because credit has gotten more profitable for these retailers and the retail operation has gotten less profitable. So that's, uh, that's our view overall on credit. Yeah, and the credit names like your synchronies and your capital ones, they trade at what, like seven times earnings? And you get your retail operations that trade at, you know, anywhere between, you know, 10 and 25 times, depending on who you are. Um, so um, that's definitely something to keep in mind. And that's a big area of focus for next year, particularly if we don't get stimulus. Um, if there's no more incremental stimulus that comes through, we're going to see a really big tick up in delinquencies, which is going to be a big problem. 
Um, so with all of those factors mentioned, uh, if you flip to the following slide uh, here, it just shows the, the next 12-month earnings expectations. It's kind of a revision factor. So basically, since March of 20, you know, no shocker, you had a really big decline in overall earnings expectations um, on the part of the street. Now, if you look, I don't know if you could even see that tiny little blip way to the far right here. We're finally at a point where we're looking at uh, positive earnings again. Um, it'll get a lot more positive than that. Again, we're going to have two quarters here, which are going to be really, really easy to anniversary. You're going to have companies who are going to be putting up monster numbers. The consensus is already there. Let's be clear about that. So it's all going to come down to where the companies are coming in relative to where the street is. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is earnings matter again. And there's uh, a major point I have with that. If you look at the following slide, this is the tail or the multi-year, the, the, the two to three year top line expectations for all of retail. So we had about a 3% decline in 2020 um, for overall uh, sales growth in our entire universe of, uh, our entire universe of retail companies. Um, and in 2021, people are looking for a snapback of 13%. That pegs your, you know, your two-year average at about, you know, 6% or so, which, look, that's probably about fair. Um, I'm not going to argue with that. Sales numbers, I mean, they come and, come and go up and down based in large part about what Keith and Darius are saying about the quads and the U.S. economy and, you know, w where we're headed or headed away from. Um, but I would point you towards the slide I do have a problem with, which is slide 13 here, which shows your tail margin expectations. Now, if you look at this, the column to the far left of this chart, that's 2015. EBIT margins for all of retail were 9.7%. They were down every year. We had some really strong years there as far as top line, really strong consumer environments, um, and yet every year they were down. Why? One of the biggest reasons is that you have a shift to e-com. E-com is margin dilutive. Any, there, there's, there's probably five companies I could count on my hand, which is good because I only have five fingers, um, that actually have margins accretive when they move to an e-com model. That's like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, a couple of the Capri brands, um, more luxury-esque type type companies whereby they make more money if they go direct to you instead of having to go and sell through a Macy's or a Foot Locker or somebody like that. But if you're Ulta, um, if you're Kohl's, if you're um, even Nordstrom, which I went bullish on this morning, if you're any of these companies that basically is just in the business of selling other people's product, generally speaking, you're going to see margin erosion as e-com becomes a bigger part of your business. So. If you look at that trend, every single year, just down, 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 anywhere between, you know, call it 20, 40 basis points. Um, uh, it was down a hell of a lot more than that in 2020. That had to do with reasons um, above and beyond uh, e-commerce. But then you look at 2021. So next year, people are looking at an 8.3 
8% operating margin. That's on par with 2018, above 2019, and then people are looking for another increase in margins in 2022. So I don't get it. Um, I just don't see how that's possible. There are certain retailers that can do it. Um, I mentioned Nordstrom earlier. I think that's a good example. Capri is a great example. They're going to have such big margin improvement over time, um, over uh, short-term, intermediate-term, and long-term duration. Um, so I can pick out several companies. Nike will be higher. Um, again, ask questions about any of these, and I'll elaborate on them. Um, but as an industry, e-com is getting bigger. It's going to gain 500 basis points of overall retail sales growth, um, and that's going to take margins lower, not higher. So my, my gut tells me and my analysis tells me that you got the 8.3% number in 2021 is going to end up coming closer to about 7.5%, and uh, 2022 will be even less than that. So we've got the, and this is where, you know, I go back to uh, our idealist. Don't go there on the slide deck. I've got it in like another slide or two here. But, um, there's going to be a big blowout in companies, some who are improving margins to a large extent, others who are just going to take a complete bath. And it seems like Wall Street is really painting these all with one broad brush. So I think it's a great opportunity for some really good alpha generation. Um, so let's end. Let's skip this next slide here. Um, if there's a question on Capri, which I hope there is, I'll go back to this slide here. Um, that's my top idea alongside, um, but uh, I'll just leave you with my idealist here. We're about 25 minutes in. Jeremy, I don't know if you have any questions there lined up. If people want to talk about, uh, about individual tickers, if so, let's go there and let's get it done. Sure. So, yeah, if you have any questions, plug them into the, uh, the queue there below the video player and you know, upvote the ones you really like. Uh, first one I'm going to start with here, Brian. Can Chewy hang on uh, onto a post-COVID, sorry, post-vaccine world? Chewy hang on to a post-vaccine world. I guess what's you know the outlook lapping COVID for uh, for Chewy? Yeah, look, I mean, Chewy acquired 3.2 million net new consumers in the first two quarters of this year, which is more than it acquired all of last year. There was clearly a COVID benefit. People don't want to go to pet stores. They, um, 70% of the people who subscribe to Chewy are on an auto ship model where the food just gets sent like on the 15th of every month. You know you got to feed your dog or your cat or I have five dogs. I got to feed them all. I'm probably Chewy's biggest customer, um, which is a sad statement about me. Um, <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that the net customers that they brought on this year you spend about 150 bucks a, month, a, a, a year as a year one Chewy customer. Then in year two, you spend closer to 250, 275. Year three, you go to 375, 400. There's a material ramp up um, in the average spending per consumer. So what you got to look at is there'll be a little bit of a trade-off. We will not see a decline in the total customer count at Chewy, but we'll probably see a slight decline, a slight tempering in the growth rate of, of new customers being brought on, but that's gonna be offset by higher average spending per customer, so it's still gonna drive 
um, a top line growth rate in between 30 and 40 percent, which I think is key. That's going to happen at the same time where the company starts to adopt an international model. It's going to go to Canada first, um, and then it's going to go to Western Europe, and then it'll probably go to Australia. Um, it's uh, people across the world think about their there are certain <laughs> certain parts of Asia where they don't quite care about their pets as much as we do, um, which is why that's not at the top of Chewy's list. Um, but overall. In the UK, very pet-friendly environment. Australia, very pet-friendly environment. Canada, which will be their first big shot. The great thing is that they can leverage their USDC infrastructure, and they can actually just ship into Canada from the US without the added capital costs. So I think there's a lot of things to like about the Chewy model. Cash flow break-even this year, gap earnings break-even next year, and then they are on a profitability ramp in the years thereafter. Um, the stock has been working great. Do I, I worry a little bit about getting greedy on it. Um, yeah, but I mean, I still think as I look at how this thing is valued on a price to sales multiple, which I hate looking at, mind you, as a retail analyst. I'm not a tech analyst. Our tech analysts here are great, and they got that price to sales thing all figured out. But in retail, I like looking at cash flow. I like looking at earnings and like real tangible earnings metrics. Um, and I think we'll actually have that with Chewy and the valuation narrative will change over the course of a tail duration. So that's my way of saying I still like it. I still think it's an $80 to $90 stock over a 12 to 18 month time period. Gotcha. All right, next question here. There seems to definitely be some interest in Michael's. People probably like in the, the leverage and uh, multiple on that one. But the question is, uh, Michael's is no Capri, but where do you see Michael's going over the next 12 months? Um, I'm, I'm not going to respect the premise of the question. I'm going to change it around a little bit, and I'm going to say where do I see Michael's going over the course of three to six months, because ultimately I think that's where the trade is. This is not like a high conviction, you know, three to five year name like an RH or Capri where they're completely dominating their space and having an accelerated growth rate and moving towards luxury multiples. This is Michael's stores. It's where you go if you want to get a picture framed or you want to buy arts and crafts. But the fact of the matter is we're still dealing with COVID for, you know, in many quarters. I still think come next Thanksgiving, we're probably still wearing masks. That's just my opinion. I don't know what our official view is from our healthcare team, but um, it's something that we still have to deal with. And while you had sporting goods as a category, you had electronics, you had home, that really drove earnings for a lot of these companies over the course of quarters uh, uh, two, three, and to a certain extent, we'll drive it in the fourth quarter. Michaels is going to really take over, and it's going to be much more indoor-based, arts and crafts-based. Um, last conference call, the company said they were comping up in the high single digits. Our data shows that they were comping above that. Ultimately, I think it's going to have a very good quarter. Um, the guide will probably be soft because that's what Michaels does. They guide soft. But this thing is, Jeremy, what's the uh, short interest on, uh, on, on Michaels now, like 40%? Uh, I'd have to check. Maybe not quite that high, but yeah, it's pretty elevated and it's trading at a very, uh, very low multiple. So, you know, upside in the near-term earnings would be in a pretty big stock change, I think. 
Yeah. Yes. So this is na a name. It's more of a renter than an owner. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's like a three to six month call in my mind. Gotcha. Uh, number three question here. Any thoughts on Lulu when we haven't been talking about quite as much recently, but we've got a lot of history with um, being both bearish and bullish. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, Lulu benefited from COVID to a large extent. I mean, people are buying comfortable clothes, workout clothes. Um, to to an extent, Nike did too. It did relatively well. You know, they went ahead and they bought Mirror for $500 million. There's a part of me where I look at that, and it's like when Under Armour bought by Endo Mondo and My Fitness Pal, and, you know, it's uh, Connected Fitness Initiatives which did not end up adding a whole lot of value for Under Armour shareholders. In fact, now they're getting rid of them. Um, so I wondered, I wondered to an extent if they're kind of jumping the shark on this one and this is them calling the top. But I still think, look, it's a great brand. Um, they um, have buy-in from their consumers on a global basis. They got a really great um, men's business, which is still probably in the third or fourth inning, and they've got a lot of upside there. They started a footwear initiative. It didn't really work out very well, so they probably won't move forward with that. Am I averse to owning a name like Lulu? No, I'm not. Would I put fresh money here? No, with the stock at like 335. That's just out of memory. I think that's about where it is. Um, no, I wouldn't. Um, but I also can come up with a compelling short against it. So this is one of those ones where I'm just kind of watching it. I'm waiting for some controversy, um, which I could weigh in on and ultimately be off a consensus either one way or another. Um, so I'm kind of agnostic on Lulu. Yeah, you don't want to forget that very bearish data point that I, I bought my first Lulu product and they did their uh, spring sale here this year. Yeah, I'm buying it. Jeremy can kill a brand like nobody. I'm uh, I'm the most utilitarian shopper. Brian's the brand guy here. So. Uh, <laughs> all right, next question. Um, so somebody says first a big thanks. Been long, Chewy, Capri, Costco, RH. Uh, other than Capri, rightly or wrongly, all have COVID element with them. How will this sentiment play into next year with these winners? So what's, you know, what do you think the, I guess, sort of the, the, the risk, if, if any, on particularly Chewy, Costco, we were hit on Chewy, but Costco, RH, uh, as it relates to lapping, uh, you know, lapping COVID and, and sentiment next year? Yeah, so I'll uh, start with RH because it's a name which has, I don't want to say made my career, but it's probably the best long call I've ever had in my career. We were long it at 30, and now it's at 435. Um, and quite frankly, I think it's going to 800. Um, and the company is just embarking on an international growth strategy. It can add stores in the US, not because it uh, can, but because the consumer actually wants it to um, over a five to 10 year time period and not dilute its own demand. Um, which I think is really huge, and you can't find that anywhere out there in retail. At the same time, where now they're going over to Europe and they're building stores in Europe, Europe's even a, a more highly fragmented furniture market than you have here in the U.S. Um, so I think RH is going to absolutely crush it over in the U.K. 
Now, that said, as I look at it, um, RH is the top name on my long bench. Why isn't it the best idea if I'm telling you it's going to be an $800 stock and it's now in the 400s? Um, there's, got, there's got to be a misstep. There just has to be. RH is good for a misstep every couple of years. You know, the brand tries new things every day. They're not afraid to accept the fact that every day the plan changes. Um, and that's what's made them so successful. But they go with the flow, and occasionally they'll mis-execute. Um, and I don't blame them for it. Well, no, I do blame them for it. I mean, if they made a mistake, they made a mistake. And they got to deal with it. But what dealing with it is, is usually having a big drawdown on the stock price. So as I look at the outsized demand that we've had in the home space, anything that's remotely close to the home, if you look at Wayfair, At Home, WSM, RH, the home business at TJX, um, Kohl's home business has been on fire, and it's Kohl's. Kohl's, uh, Kohl's is a piece of garbage. Um, it, it, it's just the home has been an extremely hot, hot, hot category overall. I think it lasts a little bit longer than just anniversary and COVID, and all of a sudden no one's interested in homes anymore. You buy a new home, there's been a huge amount of housing activity, and ultimately you're buying furniture over a multi-year time period. But I think sales and overall demand are inflecting to the downside. And when you're carrying a 20, 25 multiple, and you see sales that, you see a demand trend going from plus 46 to only plus 20, well, that's probably not a multiple expander. And if at the same time they're putting capital into a European model, um, that'll probably be dilutive. They might have missteps over there as they have to learn a new market, new logistics infrastructure. It could get hairy. So I'm waiting on that one in order to you know, have that pound the table, like, hey, let's do a black book and map out the, how this name actually gets to an $800 stock price. Um, so I think that'll happen over the course of a year, year and a half, um, hopefully sooner because I want to make that call. But um, that's how I look at RH. Jeremy, other tickers were what? Costco? Yeah, the other one was Costco. I'll, I'll, before you hit on Costco, I'll give a quick thought on RH too. But the, um, you know, there's, there's kind of different elements to home, right? There's a lot of buying, buying you know, a, a desk and buying some decor because you want to redecorate while you're stuck at home. Uh, the, the dynamic that we think um, can definitely last longer, and this is something our housing team is talking about, is this migration out of, you know, out of cities, we don't think that's like a couple quarter event. Um, you know, people are going to realize there's risks of another situation where, you know, you have closing down, et cetera, in, in a city and on the margin, people are going to be looking for, you know, properties or alternatives out to outside of your city center. So this sort of migration out and, and upscaling, therefore you need, you know, more furniture to sort of fill those properties. It, it, this is this is obviously much more of a dynamic on the high end, which is where RH plays. So I think that's a little bit more of a, a longer term trend than just a few quarters and then we, we have an issue lapping it. But uh, I just wanted to add that that context. Yeah. So and Costco, Costco. So, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, and I would just uh, add that on the short side, we have Wayfair, which has been a huge play on the home. Wayfair has been putting up tremendous top line numbers. As you saw, the Amazons of the world, um, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond has been a complete mess. Um, the home businesses with the Kohl's of the world that were closed down for a number of months, 
um, and Home Goods was closed down for a little while, and it all just accrued right over to Wayfair. And this is a company that has never made money, and all of a sudden you have two quarters where it just printed money. Um, and the rate of change there is going to slow very dramatically next year. It's a name that trades on rate of change. Um, and as we re-rate it based on where the top line trends are coming in, you get to 40 to 60% downside on Wayfair. So it's a name that we don't like over a tail duration. Um, there are some people who are passionate about it. They love this thing, and they'll support it at every chance they can get. Um, but overall, we're coming in on the bear side of that one. Um, and I would definitely pair that against uh, RH, uh, especially once I'm ready to make that really big RH call again. Gotcha. Then do you have any uh, other Costco thoughts, sir? Costco, look, I mean, people, um, Costco has about 54% of its business is grocery, um, and then it sells other things like electronics and home goods. Um, you could even buy a coffin at Costco, which is about as morbid a data point I could throw out at you. Um, but the fact of the matter with Costco and with the consumer in general, people are consolidating their shopping trips. This is why you've seen like at Walmart, their transactions have been down by, you know, a double digit rate. But what they spend when they go to the store is actually outsized on the upside. Costco, which just declared a $10 special dividend yesterday, which I think is a really big deal, or the night before yesterday. Um, they're, uh, they're really executing their capital model really well. I think they're going to still have um, a benefit over the course of all of 2021 with these, um, you know, out, the outsized spending um, as people consolidate their shopping trips. I think e-commerce is like a sleeper stock driver for Costco. It's been growing 90, 93% over the past two quarters. And it's something that I think is going to accelerate over time. Costco has been hell bent on getting you inside that store. And now they're finally starting to get it, that they can actually have a very profitable e-commerce business. Um, and Costco International is also a really big driver. Um, you know, they've got a business in China. They got stores all over the world. I, I, I would like to see them grow those stores a little faster and do more aggressive store rollouts in that regard. But overall, I think at this point, over the course of a six-month time period, I think Costco is a $400 stock without much resistance. Gotcha. Um, just sort of for reference, I was I checked the uh, Michael's short interest. You're right; it's right around forty percent. Um, so I love when you tell me I'm right. <laughs> well, thirty-nine point six. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, so, question here: you've, you've hit on a, a bunch of other ones here about you know, Wayfair and RH Long, so I won't. I will skip some of those. Um, but can you speak to the out of favor names like Guess? Gap and Gildan, and I, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm not sure Gap is out of favor right now. I think you know, it's trading bef higher than it was sort of pre-COVID before it you know announced this next round of restructuring. And um, I'd say there's we see pretty significant risk to you know where where the market seems to be implying long-term earnings are and where we think it's going. Um, you get, I think you got to believe in a turnaround the Gap brand around, uh, you know, maybe Yeezy's a catalyst for that, but I don't see how that's um, really big enough. You, you, you have to talk about several hundred million dollars to billions of dollars for that brand to get the sales number you need. But um, 
anyway, Brian, I, I'll let you hit on some of their guests, Gap, Gildan. Gildan's certainly been been doing better lately and the, the question acknowledged that. Um, but, you know, maybe thoughts on upside more so than uh, from here. Yeah, and I, I don't have a major call on, on, uh, on guests right now. This is, um, I was on the macro show with Keith a couple of months ago. I mentioned it and it had a really nice run. Um, the company still has a lot of issues it's got to deal with, but it's got very good management now. Um, and it still has a big margin recovery story. Um, and as it culled some of its bad stores this past year, right-sized its SG&A structure, you know, guess they actually do have more of the kind of going-out type clothes that they saw in the stores, which you could see a snapback next year on top of a more lean SG&A structure. You could get back up to a high single-digit uh, EBIT margin, which would basically double EPS. Um, is that my call on it? No, but is that what my gut tells me happens? Yes. Um, I just have more work to do on that one. It's not an name I'm asked about often. Maybe it's because of the cap. Maybe it's because it's just been so out of favor for so long. Maybe because it's been out of favor for as long as it has been is, is exactly why I should be going there. So that's exactly why I appreciate questions like this because it makes me think about kind of where I should be spending my time. Um, the other out of favor name, Jeremy? So uh, oh, uh, Gildan. Gil and Gildan, if you have thoughts on either of those. Yeah, why don't you hit on Gildan? Um, yeah, so it's it's one, obviously, we, we think the long-term story is very powerful to be, you know, have a real a real mode. They're really a manufacturing company. Right? They have a brand, but the, the brand is minimal in terms of what the business is there. Uh, they, they operate in screen print, making very inexpensive fleece and, and shirts. And you know they have a new private label partnership with Walmart that's been going very well, growing shelf space, growing share uh, with the George brand. And you know the the sort of issue with the stock right now is there is a very large portion of the business that's tied to one events, so uh, you know concerts and sporting events that aren't happening, and we really don't know exactly when they'll be happening. It, it seems like it would be sometime in 2021, but we don't know for sure. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, it's a big side, a big amount of business tied to corporate promotions. So you get, you know, get your shirt when you get a credit card or something that, that they're just, uh, those corporations have been pulling back on, uh, in terms of that promotional level. So, uh, I would say, you know, the stocks may be pricing in a little bit too much on like near term earnings, but, uh, you know, what the upside is when those things come back, your rate of change should remain positive. And we think there's, you know, the upside to $3 in earnings power in the stocks, I think in like the mid twenties. Um, so, you know, I think there's very significant upside that the next couple of quarters could be a little bit squirrely. It's kind of gotten to what they think is their sort of near term, um, you know, utilization rate in the, in the, uh, or production rates in their, in their mills around 75%. They'll be able to generate nice profits and cash flow there. But uh, in terms of getting the big earnings numbers, it, you know, it might be another, you know, 12 to 18 months before we start seeing that really flow through on the PNL. But it's it's still a name that we do like. It's on our best idea list. Yep. Um, it's just a function of when will a cotton t-shirt be have the kind of utility where it's part of our mainstream economy again. Um, and that all comes with opening back up again, and that just takes time. But uh, it's still there. I think very difficult to paint a bear case around Gildan here. Agree. Yeah. So the, the rate of change will probably only get better from here. Um, I think the stock's pricing that in some, but 
it's uh, it's far from where it should be in terms of the tail earnings power for sure. Yep. All right. How how are we doing on time, Jam? Uh, I think we got to another five minutes here at least. There's a couple specific questions I want to hit on. So you mentioned this earlier, so why not hit on it? But the what is the upside for Capri? You want to go to that slide, perhaps, uh, Gendron? Yeah, so t check out the uh, slide, the second-to-last slide in the deck. Um, you can basically look at that one and see where it is. The crux of this is that Capri is the former Michael Kors brand. Kors was a hot brand. It was doing 32% operating margins up until 2015. Then the, the quote-unquote accessible luxury hand space, uh, hand, handbag space just started to really um, ebb and uh, growth rate slowed, margin slowed, um, and this thing got, and, and it's always been a hedge fund trading stock, um, and it basically got like a, 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 a five times EBITDA multiple. I mean, it, it was just crazy. And they went ahead and they bought Jimmy Choo and Versace. Um, these are two really high growth, um, very, very powerful assets. And they bought them about two to three years ago, and they said flat out at the time they bought them, which a lot of people thought that they overpaid, that it was going to be two to three years until we actually started to see both the top line growth and the margin profile accelerate. And what they're doing is they're fixing the mix between footwear, accessories growth, men's ready to wear, women's ready to wear, licensing. You've got to optimize all of these by channel, by geography, um, online versus in store versus in a department store. I mean, it's very, very complicated. And they bought companies that basically hadn't had management before. Um, or they've had management, but it, they were founder-led companies where you had a designer that was also a CEO, and that never, ever works over the long term. So now that's what they got. In this year, you have 100% of EBITDA, which is the low multiple Michael Kors brand. They're um, down about a billion dollars in sales this year um, as they rip the bandaid off a bad distribution, which takes margins up. They just put up a 24 operating margin in the Michael Kors brand in this latest quarter, which blew me away. Um, that's part of what got his stock up to a certain extent um, over the past uh, three to four weeks. Um, but starting next year and the year after that and the year after that, you're going to see um, Jimmy Choo and also Versace, which are going to become a greater part of the portfolio. Those are luxury assets. Any way you cut it, they're luxury brands. They fit right in line with the LVMHs and the Keerings of the world and the Burberrys of the world. And, you know, those are much, much higher margin, much higher multiple companies. And I think the company is sandbagging the long-term margin profile associated with those companies as they grow again. And then you're going to get multiples on top of those instead of having like the five times EBITDA multiple that you get with Michael Kors. You're going to get, you know, 10, 11, 12 times on the EBITDA associated with these growing divisions. Ultimately, I, I have like right now today stock worth roughly $30, which is probably about where it is. If I'm looking forward a year, I get to $45. Um, if, if I'm looking, you know, 18 months out, I'm looking closer to $60. So this is like a 12 to 18 month double. Um, and ultimately, over the course of my modeling time period here, which is five years, I know that's like an eternity, but I get to $100 stock. 
So it's funny, is, is that this thing is owned by hedge funds. It's rented by hedge funds, I should say. There's no long-only sponsorship. And I think long-only investors are going to be stepping up and buying this thing at 45 50 bucks. So the stock is going to keep working. It's going to keep working a lot. I think the back half numbers that the company set are very doable and they're beatable. I'm ahead of the consensus. That's not the reason for my call, but it's definitely something that supports the call. Um, and uh, people are going to wake up and realize that there are these underappreciated, overgrowing, not, not growing too fast, but very rapidly growing high margin assets, which are evolving inside this company, which are going to be worth paying for. So is there as much upside here as there was at, at RH? No, RH is a 10-bagger. This is a 3-bagger, maybe a 4-bagger. Um, but it's one where um, I would caution you against selling it too early. Do not sell this early. Don't say, oh, great, I just made my uh, my 60% upside on this name. I'm going to book again and get out of here. If you want to use Keith's levels, he'll tactically trade that, and he'll, over a $30 stock move, he'll hopefully make you know a $50 to $60 uh, uh, alpha range based on that, um, as uh, you know, as he rides it up and rides it down, and he plays his ranges. His risk ranges are very good, um, as all of you know. But this is one if you're a, 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 a tail investor and want a name you could stick away and just watch it grow. Um, look no further than this one, um, and then look at RH once it. Uh, it takes a step back on the European expansion. Yep, and I'll just, uh, I know I can hear Keith saying when you, you know, when you hit those ends of the range, you sell some and buy some, right? You know, it's not opening and closing the position every time. It's, it's signaling on, you know, add, add or subtract a little bit. So risk manage the position. Right. Um, all right, one, uh, one last one, Brian, and then we'll kind of close out here. But uh, VFC, how does this compare to Nike under Armour, et cetera, in terms of ability to benefit from more business going online. Uh, are they taking aggressive action to close less profitable uh, doors? So, um, so I, I heard Nike, I heard Under Armour. I didn't hear the ticker you're talking about. It was VF, VFC. VFC? Uh, I don't get this company. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a serial acquirer. It doesn't really grow well organically. It has one brand that's doing well, another brand will take it down. It's got to go ahead, it's got to buy new brands. It just bought Supreme, which um, it paid a very hefty price tag for, um, and it was probably a very good deal. Um, but it's probably bought that because it's Vans brand, which has been the driver for the stock over the past two to three years, is getting long in the tooth. I think the spirit of the question, which I just ignored, is will um, a shift over to e-com be margin accretive as the company you know, just goes more DTC? And the answer is yes. Um, I think it definitely will. But where I have a hard time with is as they have all these other non-core brands, they got Timberland, which hasn't grown in God knows how long, um, and they overpaid there. Um, they got Vans, which is a very good brand. They have North Face, which is kind of hit or miss. Um, are, are you going to make a bet on it being a cold winter this year? Good luck with that. 
Um, but uh, yes, they do benefit from higher margins as they go more DTC, but that's not the key to the call. That's, that's your Nike call. That's your Under Armour call. That's your Adidas call where you can actually model a good three to 400 basis points margin improvement just as we come out of a permanent shift um, and we move on with permanent shift from going to a wholesale model to a DTC model. But be careful with that on VF. Gotcha. All right, I think we'll wrap up the Q&A there. I just want to remind people they can check out the Retail Pro. It's a, it's a new product that we think is exciting and is, is you know, only going to get better. We're going to take your feedback and, and tweak the product profile to make it um, you know, more compelling and, and more valuable for, for all your users. So please check that out. I think, Brian, we're, we're going to do a call with Neil Howe, right, in December, talking about uh, what's, what's retail going to look like here in a post-COVID world. Yeah, yeah, we're going to mess. Yeah, we have a lot of history, a, a lot of great historical data on retail going back to, you know, when it first started with the Sears catalog, like in 1886. Um, and that's about how far back Neil thinks as well. So I anticipate it's going to be a really good, really um, thoughtful, uh, data-rich and insight-rich on Neil's part um, as far as kind of how the world of retail is changing and where you want to be invested and where you don't want to be invested. So that's something you won't want to miss. That's going to be on December 8th at 1230. Gotcha. All right. So check it all out. Thank you all for tuning in. We look forward to uh, having you on future Retail Sector Pro events and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.